This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business. Reserve Bank has held the official cash rate steady at 5.5%. With us is NZIER Principal Economist Christina Luong. So Christina, as expected, we were thinking 5.5% this month, but what did you think of the Reserve Bank's rhetoric today, what it was saying? That was pretty much as expected as well, acknowledging that the um, activity has slowed. Now, of course, that's been the intention with its uh, rate interest rate increases over the past years. Um, The fact that we're now seeing the impact, the dampening effects of higher interest rates onto broader economic activity, um, that is what they would want given that they want to bring inflation back towards its 1% to 3% target ban. Also noting that like the with the impact of this uh, transmission of monetary policy onto the, um, the broader economy, it does tend to be quite lagged. And that partly reflects the fact that a significant proportion of mortgages in New Zealand are on fixed term rates. And when starting to see that impact of that as house, many households are rolling off historically low fixed term mortgage rates onto something significantly high. When they say likely to be on hold for longer, how long do they expect? Uh, So uh, I would expect that um, if you look at the uh, their projections in the past that it is for at least a year. Now, wanting to manage, I would say that's to manage expectations, it's particularly in markets, wanting to know when the timing of the next cut is. The nature of financial markets is that they're always looking for the next move in interest rates. It's either a hike or a cut. So if they're not signalling any further incre- OCR increases in the cycle, then the focus turns to when are they going to start cutting. So at the moment, there is still a little bit of uncertainty over what that their next move will be in the cycle, but they're um, keen to manage those expectations in the sense that um, any cuts will be quite some time away. Do you sit in the camp of a cut or a camp of another hike? Uh, so we don't expect that there'll be any further OCR increases in the cycle. Uh, we believe that we are seeing that impact, um, the impact of higher interest rates gaining traction. The fact that you do tend to see the impact of uh, OCR increases onto the broader economy quite lagged, as I mentioned, because of the uh, nature of mortgages here in New Zealand, a large proportion of that being on fixed term rates. We're still yet to see the full impact of OCR increases that we've already had. So as these continue to flow through to the broader economy, as many households roll off um, fixed-term interest rate uh, mortgage rates of around two to four percent onto something around seven uh, percent or even higher, as those significantly mortgage, um, higher mortgage repayments continue to crowd out discretionary spending, we would expect further slowing in retail activity and broader economic activity more generally. So there's no major impetus on inward migration at the moment. We do acknowledge that. Uh, the strong recovery in net migration inflows would uh, boost demand in the New Zealand economy. At the moment, though, as our latest NZIA quarterly survey of business opinion show, a large part of that impact is more on the supply side. Um, the fact that there's been quite a sharp easing in labour shortages, particularly when mm. it comes to unstat for unskilled labour, um, with a net 7% of businesses uh, in the latest survey actually saying that now it's now easy to find um, unskilled labour. 
So that's quite a turnaround from the over half of businesses just a year ago um, reporting that it was difficult to find unskilled labour. Um, the fact that um, when asking businesses what the primary constraint on their businesses, um, at the a year ago we had seen very severe labour shortages and that's now turning around with uh, the lack of demand now more of a primary concern for businesses. Mm. Hand in hand with the easing labour shortages is also the fact that wage pressures are coming down too? We would expect that as um, with the sharp easing in labour shortages, um, it does suggest that there's more slack in the labour market now and this will, we would expect, will flow through to an easing in wage growth as a result. And that's another pressure off inflation? That's right. So as we've seen, this sharp easing in labour shortages has meant uh, um, easing in capacity pressures in the New Zealand economy more broadly. While um, the latest uh, NZIA quarterly survey business opinion do show that cost pressures are still pretty intense at right here, right now, we do expect that with this easing in capacity pressures, that will take that heat off um, cost pressures and lead to an easing in inflation pressures in the New Zealand economy over the coming years. The Reserve Bank government has also talked about inflation around the world taking a bit of a backward step as well. We are seeing um, easing in inflation globally. That said, um, in the US, there's probably um, a bit of concern there whether the easing is at the pace that is to the liking of the Federal Reserve, uh, US Federal Reserve. So there is still that uncertainty over um, monetary policy globally in terms of whether there is any further tightening to do. Mm. Also says a near-term risk is that activity and inflation won't slow as much as expected and buy as fast. So uh, while inflation pressures are easing and moving in the right direction, of course the big question is, is it easing at the as fast as the Reserve Bank would like? If we look at um, inflation expectations, it is still looking uh, a bit elevated there. So there is still the risk that inflation will be stickier than what the Reserve Bank would be hoping for in returning annual CPI inflation back towards its 1-3% to target ban. Mm. And with that business demand, businesses are finding it harder to pass on price increases, so that is also going to be taking some heat out of inflation too? That's right. Um, while cost pressures are still intense, um, that's what businesses are reporting, when it comes to uh, how the ability to increase prices, we are seeing that impact of softer demand um, in their own business really Im- limiting the extent to which they can pass on those cost pressures onto customers by raising prices. So what that means is that you're likely to see with this easing in the pricing uh, pressures more generally that that will, should help to uh, take the pressure off inflation over the coming year. And what's your opinion of the current state of the housing market and where it might be heading? We are starting to see some, um, in terms of uh, interest, renewed interest in the housing market. Now, uh, part of that reflects uh, the strong net migration inflows. Um, That is we would expect would um, support uh, stronger housing demand. Also, with that uh, confidence that um, there will be no further OCR increases um, in the cycle, then that perhaps gives uh, people more confidence that, that if they were to buy a house now, that they won't have any significant increase in mortgage rates down the track. So uh, those overall, those factors help to um, take some pressure in terms of um, support that um, demand in the housing market. Uh, also, when you look at uh, what's going on with construction activity, uh, while the near-term pipeline is 
is showing signs of slowing. We do expect that down the track um, with this migration-led population growth that it would support uh, stronger housing market activity over the longer term. And what sort of effect would that have on economic activity? You do tend to see some wealth effects come through um, from what happens in the housing market. Um, when house prices are higher, you, uh, households do tend to see um, the fact that the value of their um, house is higher does make them feel wealthier, tend to spend more. Also the fact when you have higher number of house sales, um, you tend to see spending on things like electronics, furniture, go hand in hand with that as people go um, furnish their new homes with uh, electronics and the like. And election is about 10 days away. What impetus is that going to have if there's a change of government on interest rates? Uh, a large part of that I would um, expect would depend on the um, indication or the degree to which uh, spending, government spending and tax plans impact on inflation more broadly. Um, at the end of the day, the Reserve Bank's mandate is to bring uh, have inflation, annual CPI inflation, between 1% to 3% over the medium term. So anything that might reignite um, inflation or uh, lead inflation to be more elevated than current projections does uh, bring with it the risk that interest rates might be higher than where things are at currently. So, for example, if there are tax cuts on the table, that may just fuel the economy a little bit? So uh, potentially, but of course it depends on what we term the net impulse to the economy, the fiscal impulse. So if we were to see uh, tax cuts being offset by, for example, cut, uh, reduced spending, government spending in areas or, uh, or or perhaps tax increases in other areas, then the net impulse to the economy um, if it's positive, um, then that would be inflationary for the economy. But if it was mm. negative, for example, if there was um, some uh, reduction in government spending to the to the extent that um, it, uh, the net impact is taking things um, pressures out of the economy, then that would mm. suggest that you'll get less inflation pressures down the track. Christina Luong, thanks for your time. Thank you. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Marama Labs was a company spun out from Victoria University and made its name with CloudSpec, a spectroscopy device that quickly and accurately analyses cloudy liquids. Used by winemakers, the company is now seeking capital to grow and enter new fields. I'm joined by co-founder and CEO, Dr. Brendan Darby. Brendan, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah. Um, now, tell us about um, where the company is at right at the moment. I understand you're making quite big strides in the US, for example. Yeah, that's right. Um, we have, uh, you know, been in Marama Labs formed in 2019, spun out of uh, Victoria University and our target market initially is the wine industry. And we've been working very closely with some of New Zealand's, um, you know, I guess leading wineries over the last number of years in uh, getting our technology into into, into wineries and optimizing production process. And about 18 months ago, we we entered the US, US wine market, which is, you know, one of the largest uh, wine producing markets in the, in the world. Uh, there's about 10,000 wineries uh, in the US. Uh, in New Zealand, for context, we, we have about 600. 
Um, so you can sort of see the size, um, order of magnitude of the size of the market there. Um, we entered the, the US market um, in, in 2019, um, so 2021, and we've had, we've had really great uptake of, of the technology there, primarily um, in California on the West Coast, um, but we also have activities now uh, kind of up and down, up and down the West Coast, and actually uh, recently on the on the East Coast uh, of, of of the US as well. So we're getting really we're really excited about the opportunity there um, in the in the US wine market. It sounds as though you had quite a lot of success early on. I mean, you've grown it from a, a spin off to this multinational business very quickly, really in the in the scope of things. Um, where was it proven commercially, or what was sort of the f- big first commercial break you had? We actually, the New Zealand wine industry is, you know, known for its innovation and, and for its, its its adoption of technology. Um, you know, it's it's very well regarded on the global stage for being innovative in winemaking, but also innovative in technology. And we were really fortunate that being in Wellington, um, you know, as academics originally, um, you know, who invented this technology, um, when myself and Matthias, who's our CTO and co-founder, you know, when we had originally had this, this, I guess, technology in the lab and we were going out to the to, to the real world to sort of understand, you know, where the applications were, we I, I went out on the road and I spoke with a, a range of industries from biopharma to wastewater and, and ultimately to winemaking. And that was when we met with some of the, you know, some of New Zealand's largest winemakers and, and uh, we, we, you know, just explained our technology. We understood about their processes, and it was very clear quite quickly that um, the cloud spec had, you know, significant uh, opportunities here to to be able to optimize processes and, and provide value uh, early on in the winemaking um, phase. So actually, we're you know our our success has been has been really uh, due to that ability for the New Zealand wine industry to be open to innovation, and that is where we actually trialed our technology. Um, Matthias and I actually spent two weeks. Uh, down in Marlborough uh, with a very early version of our prototype. Uh, we spent a harvest there with, with one of New Zealand's largest winemakers, um, testing samples and, and putting the, the, the prototype through its paces and understanding the, I guess, the, um, you know, the, the, the context of what happens in a busy period in a winery. And that was really, uh, I guess, formative in our ability to then move towards a commercial product that was really designed in the in in the eyes of the, of the end user which is which is a winery so um, that's really built on the basis of, of how we've been able to scale okay um in New Zealand you said there's about 600 wineries so how many wineries in mm. New Zealand roughly are using your product yeah so we've got some we've got some household names um, that are that are using using the cloud spec for a number of years now um, primarily in primarily in Marlborough um, but we're also we also have wineries in Central Otago in Hawke's Bay. Um, some of those names people will know, which are Cloudy Bay um, and Geeson. Um, so you know we've been working really closely with these wineries who produce extremely high quality wines and, and are adopting technologies, um, the latest technologies that are coming out. Uh, we've also been working closely with um, you know testing labs, the regional testing labs here. Uh, we've working in regions such as Martinborough. So really, quite quite widely widely spread um, around around the, the country, uh, from from large wineries to, to smaller wineries and, and and in between. And uh, I guess we're we're really just pleased to see what we can help the industry with um, in terms of this getting this technology into into the wineries across the different regions. So, how has Europe compared with America in terms of adopting this kind of technology? Yeah, so actually, it's interesting. Um, Europe is is actually more of a focus towards our, our next market and our, uh, that, we're, that we're targeting um, uh, alongside wine is, is in the biopharma um, space. So 
uh, as you can as you can imagine, this technology is is quite broadly applicable. Um, you know, liquids are liquids are quite prevalent, and and wine is wine is one of those liquids in which um, our technology has advantages. But uh, there's also future applications in in other markets, and one of those is in is in the biopharma space and the biopharma production. Um, so Ireland, as you might know, is is quite a leader um, in that space. Um, many of the sort of global uh, biopharma manufacturers have leading production sites um, in Ireland. And we've been working quite closely over the last you know, six or nine months to explore those opportunities and validate the technology, the cloud spec technology in, in that market. And we've got some very, very promising results that are coming out with collaborators in, in Europe. Um, so I've been, I've been working quite closely um, with some advisors there in Europe um, to, to kind of build our connections in the biopharma space. And, we're starting to see really um, exciting opportunities. So certainly Ireland is, is a focus there and Europe is a focus for biopharma. There is the wine, of course, there are the wine um, uh, growing regions in, in, in France, Italy and Spain. And that is that is very much a focus for ours um, uh, in the future. But certainly the, the US is our kind of primary target in terms of wine right now. And then Ireland and Europe uh, constitute that, that biopharma progress um, as, our second, as our second vertical to be targeting. Just finally, Brendan, five years from now, what will you be telling me about this company um, in terms of revenue, size, geographies, products? You know, what is it going to look like, do you think, in your, you know, wildest dreams? <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Look, I mean, what we say is we're 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 using our, our spectroscopy technology to help the world, you know, optimise the use of its liquid resources. Um, so I can, Marama Labs will be creating technology that not only helps winemakers produce better wines, but it helps you know, the world produced drugs and medicines faster and cheaper. And I anticipate our technology will be in every bioreactor in the world. It'll be on the bench of every biopharma lab in the world. And it will be, you know, in every in every wine tank and on every wine lab bench around the world. Um, so we really have big ambitions. Um, you know, we come from New Zealand and we're, we're environmental at heart. So we certainly have aspirations to also bring this towards, you know, water testing um, and, and, you know, to try and, I guess, help mitigate you know pollution concerns um that's certainly the future so look we see the cloud spec as being you know a household name in, in analytical chemistry and, and in liquid um, production and i guess you know we really are shooting for the for the stars here and there's potential for us to be a hundred million dollar company and uh, revenue company in in a, in a few years time and that's what our that's what our plans are going forward nbr are offering a free trial to newcomers see what all the fuss is about on our flagship website nbr.co.nz two recent employment law cases from one school south auckland's pukekohe high school illustrate two separate set of problems one in having a staff member who is also a contractor and the other the importance of keeping stum when party to a record of settlement Young Hunter Lawyers Senior Associate Jared Alwell joins me to discuss the two cases. Thank you for coming in. Thank you, Peter. Now tell us, this is a, a very strange setup that's going on here. Just give us the top line of what's happened here. Yes, so yeah, very unusual circumstances, which we'll sort of unpack as we go. But uh, yeah, Mr Good was employed originally at Pukekohe High School in 1985 as a maths teacher. And then his role evolved into looking after the computer network. And then his employment effectively changed to becoming the computer manager, IT manager for the school. Um, but along with that, he was also engaged as an independent contractor to provide IT services uh, for the school. So he had this dual role, uh, which is very unusual. Is and it illegal? 
not illegal, but something that I would never recommend any of my clients, uh, employer clients, um, get entangled in because it creates an immediate sort of conflict of interest, which we can talk about a little bit uh, soon. Absolutely. Interestingly, the arrangement seemed to be made with the then principal, uh, Mr McKinnon, and continued along uh, quite happily for, for decades, in, in effect. And Matters only really came to light when a new principal was appointed, Mr Barnett, in 2018. And then there were some questions raised around the connections and the invoices that were being submitted and an inquiry was begun uh, and, and matters sort of un- unfolded from there. Right. So would it would a better way have been to just incorporate these new things in a new employment agreement? Was that possible? Yeah, so the the struggle is fundamental conflict of interest. As an employee, you have a a number of duties that are set out in your employment agreement. They're also set out in law, uh, in the statute, and also in uh, established principles of case law that you have fidelity obligations, which is you must be faithful. And it sounds like a bit of an old-fashioned term now, doesn't it? But (laughs) you must be faithful to your employer and always act in its best interests at all times. And... Also, you must disclose conflicts of interest and because that threatens that, that relationship of fidelity, which then flows on to matters of trust and confidence. So the, the issue is you, you're essentially placed in a, in a compromising position. The employer is and the employee and contractor are because there is a tension between the interests of an independent contractor who presumably wants to charge the school as much as possible for as little work as possible, mm-hmm. to make as much profit as possible, mm-hmm. versus the employee who's duty-bound to perform their services for their salary and conditions and do that in the time that they're paid to. So, yeah, it's it's a bit of a recipe for disaster <laughs> from the outset. Absolutely. Yeah. And it looks like here the, the old principal didn't brief the new principal because then this man, Mr Good, who was the dual employee contractor, sort of said, I'm not doing anything else until I get paid. It it appears that there was no documentation at all, despite this arrangement being in place for the 80s or the 90s and the early 2000s, so for perhaps 30, 35 years or so. And that was certainly an issue. And the new principal, Mr Barnett, was quite concerned around the arrangements and was questioning the invoices. And so that was something that happened initially uh, when when he became aware of it and the board looked at the matter. The board had no records of, of any arrangements being made uh, despite the authority finding that Mr Good was meticulous with detail. So very unusual not to have any documentation around such important things as an independent contractor agreement, employment agreement and, and how yeah. to avoid conflicts of interest, etc. Absolutely. And it really came to a head when the deputy principal asked Mr. Good to to perform a task based on an inquiry that had come in regarding IT. Um, he didn't reply to the email. He didn't reply to a second email. They bumped into each other in the pigeonhole area of the school, as people do. And she asked him again, and he said, oh, I'm, I'm not doing this work until my invoices are paid. So that really was the catalyst for the more serious aspects of, of the employment relationship disintegrating, where... where Mr. Barnett became aware of it and he was, well, you know, we, we told you not to um, continue with submitting these invoices previously. You're directed not to. You're still directing. You're still submitting these invoices. So two things um, essentially there. One was failure to follow a lawful and reasonable instruction of the employer, which was to, to cease 
uh, invoicing the the school and to cease um, having anything any relationship with any companies that were invoicing the school around IT just to remove any any possible mm. conflicts of interest mm. and the and the second was to uh, dis- disclose any any issues around that. So Mr. Good was invite, invited to a meeting to discuss these issues, yeah. and he got representation. And at the meeting, his representative presented a fifteen-page letter, which set out some um, fairly uh, fairly inflammatory sort of points. So one was that he would be suing Mr. Good would be suing the school for the unpaid invoices. Uh, another was that. Uh, he was actually an employee uh, under that arrangement, that contract arrangement. He was actually an employee, and they would be filing in the employment court for a de- declaration oh of status. So an employee times two. Yes, yes, yeah, <laughs> double employee. <laughs> and I'm not sure what the remedy would have been for that, maybe two salaries um, yeah. for the same hours of work. I'm not sure. Um, and the third was sort of these these quite outrageous allegations against the principle of, uh, of malfeasance and uh, just quoting here, brazen duplicity, calculated malice, wrongdoing, appalling lack of faith, and reprehensible, reprehensible and unlawful actions. So a, a whole slew of, of, yeah. of very um, serious accusatory um, comments made against the principal, which, uh, <laughs> as, I've not, as, as I was going to say later in, the, in this, that um, it's not a great idea if you're wanting to maintain or, or sustain a healthy employment relationship to, to make unfounded allegations like this. Yeah, which makes me wonder, was his representation an actual lawyer or an employment advocate? It was an employment advocate. Yeah, yeah. that's... And yeah, yeah, it, it, and it's very unusual to present this, this sort of argument at that stage of uh, proceedings. Yeah. And the board felt compelled, as it would, to investigate these allegations and when pushed, Mr Good couldn't present any evidence supporting the allegations. So yeah, yeah. Um, they were essentially unfounded but um, definitely harmed the relationship yes. uh, between the parties, as you can imagine. I, I mentioned earlier that you know, trust and confidence really underpins it's a, it really underpins the employment relationship and when someone accuses another person of these sorts of things, that is very undermining for, for that aspect. Right. So he was, was he dismissed then and and then took the case to the ERA? Yes, so he was subsequently dismissed and he raised a claim in the ERA for unjustified dismissal and unjustified disadvantage. Right. And the ERA dismissed his claims, saying that the actions of the Board of Trustees was fair and reasonable in the circumstances, that his actions had eroded the trust and confidence of the school. And the, it didn't find that the relation, the arrangement was inappropriate with the prior principal, interestingly. Um, it found that, that seemed, there seemed to be an agreement and that mm. that worked. But once he was directed to stop mm. invoicing and then directed to do the work which he was paid for and refused to do either of those, that was the effectively the, the point where he was in breach of his employment obligations and right. liable to be found uh, guilty of, guilty, responsible of serious misconduct. Yeah. A new resale right for Visual Artists Act 2023 has been enacted, with eligible artists entitled to a royalty payment when their original visual artwork is resold in the secondary market. Simpson Grierson Senior Associate Raymond Scott joins me to discuss what the Act is and what it will mean. And Raymond, um, thanks for joining us. Um, Hi, what, what is this Act? Just just give us the top line. Sure. Um, 
So it grants for eligible artists the right to receive a royalty when their uh, original visual artworks are resold on the secondary market. So that's through, for example, auction houses, um, galleries and dealers. And this is a new right for New Zealand. It's, it's something that's in place in other overseas territories, um, such as Australia, the UK and the EU. Um, but this is something new for us. Um, and it, it comes off the back of the free trade agreements with the UK and the EU, which required New Zealand to implement uh, this scheme. So who does this help? Very interesting question, because <laughs> I guess the way this has been promoted is something that is being fair for artists generally. Um, the, the statistics show that artists... Um, may receive a generally low level of income and they don't necessarily receive any benefit from the resale of their works if those works increase in value in, as they are sold in the secondary market. Um, but the way this legislation is structured is that it will probably in practice only benefit um, a, a selection or a few of those artists. Um, the reason being that there's a minimum threshold for the price of the artwork that qualifies. So what you could say is that this is going to benefit the artists who are um, commercially successful or who have well-established reputations. And in that sense, it's a bit of a carrot, i.e. if you're an artist and you really put your heart and soul into this as a career and as a practice to develop that, and if you are successful, then you'll benefit from the scheme. Though some people have said um, who benefits mostly in overseas jurisdictions where this exists are the wealthy estates of very well-established artists. Mm. Is that an argument? That They will certainly benefit under equivalent um, scheme or field here in the, the marketplace here. Um, and there's a bit of a tension there because uh, in, in one of the, the issues that they had to consider with this legislation is, well, what price do we set that value at? Um, now, the legislation allows a, a range between $500 and $5,000 for a minimum threshold of a work. It's been proposed that that's set at $1,000, excluding GST and uh, buyer's premiums and so forth. Now, the problem is, on the one hand, you could say, well, that should be lower because then more artists will be able to benefit from that. On the other hand, though, um, it's uneconomic for to have a lower threshold for that because of the administrative costs that go into actually supporting a regime like this. So it's really about striking the right balance. Though the paperwork is going to be substantial, isn't it? And a new agency has to be set up to actually administer this. Correct. So what the, uh, the Act does is allow for a collecting agency to be appointed, and that's going to be a non-governmental agency. And that's similar to regimes overseas where um, Australia and the UK, a non-governmental agency, oversees that. Now, it might be an existing organisation that is really familiar with um, the licensing of rights, um, and that's been at least suggested as part of the regulatory impact statement that it would be better if that's handled by an NGO rather than by government. But there will be a lot of costs involved in actually setting that up and administering it. Um, and the, over time, it's hoped that this will become self-sustaining through an administrative fee that's deducted from the royalties and, and used by the collecting agency. But I expect that government funding is going to be needed 
at least for the, the start of the regime, to support that. Going back to Australia, um, the regime came in at 2010, and it was only estimated that by 2025 it would become self-sustaining. Given the costs that are involved, will a change of government change anything about the rollout of this scheme? I doubt it. Uh, as it stands, the UK, as well as the EU free trade agreements with New Zealand, require that New Zealand implement a scheme like this. And that's it. So those agreements set out some basic requirements. Now, in going through the process of enacting this legislation, there was support across all parties. Um, while some parties didn't acknowledge, though, that their hands were somewhat tied because of those free trade agreements. And I guess it's a bit of a curiosity with that, that the government of the day can enter into a free trade agreement and then uh, Parliament is obliged to, to follow through with what is required under that, otherwise it's not a good look. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's right. Um, so your impression from what I understand is that this is going to be welcomed by New Zealand artists and it's generally a good thing, though there are some sort of question marks you have around it. One is that um, works generated by AI could accidentally mm. fall under it. Can you just explain a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I'm not sure if it's accidental or deliberate, but certainly the way it's framed is that... Um, an artwork that's created by or under the authority of an artist can qualify, and also it encapsulates any works that are created using computers. So it's quite possible that, that works created by AI could be captured by this. To what extent the artist actually has to be involved in that process is a bit of a question mark and is something that will yet to be tested. Um, but something also to draw out from that is, well, how does it align with copyright laws in New Zealand because there is a subtle difference there in terms of what might uh, subsist well what, what copyright might subsist in from an artistic perspective if it's generated by AI versus what might qualify under this regime um, so look it's a bit of a wait and see and ho hopefully we'll get some guidance on that <laughs> that's interesting um, original visual artwork there's also a quandary about that Yes, and that relates a bit to the, the copyright aspect. So under copyright law, for an artistic work to ha have copyright subsist in it, it needs to be original. Now under this, this legislation for the, the royalty scheme, it, it does talk about an original uh, visual artwork, but in defining that, it doesn't actually require specifically that it has to be original. Now, I don't know if that's just a matter of clumsy drafting or that's a, a deliberate move to encapsulate something broader. For example, whether that's actually intended to, to mean that, well, an artist can draw on various sources in creating their work or reproduce something that's existing. But again, you've got a tension there between, well, what's under this legislation versus what copyright might subsist in. Um, finally, Raymond, where, what are the next steps here? Yeah, so we are now waiting for formal regulations to be put in place, which will provide more of, the, more of the practical guidance around how this legislation will be implemented. And a key part of that as well is for the Minister uh, of Cultural and Heritage to appoint a collecting agency. Now, a collecting agency will be a non-governmental organisation um, that will receive the, the royalty payments and be responsible then for, for paying it to the artists or their successors in title, um, bearing in mind that this right will apply to the artists for their life plus 50 years thereafter as well. Um, and uh, so we'd, we'll look forward to seeing what those regulations are and who is actually appointed as the collecting agency. Um, 
as to timing of when the legislation comes into play, it's going to be sometime between now and December next year, but it'll probably hinge on timing of when that agency is appointed and when we get those regulations. Raymond, thank you so much. Fantastic, thank you. And that's been this week's People in Business. Thanks for listening. If you're hungry for more and want to join the discussion, head over to nbr.co.nz.